Howdy folks, welcome to the Texas Review of Law and Politics Podcast. Each episode, we bring together law professors, jurists, and practicing lawyers to discuss and debate contemporary legal issues such as crime, federalism, racial preferences, constitutional history, and religious liberties. With us today to discuss religious liberty at the court after Kennedy and Carson are Stephen Collis and Hiram Sasser. Professor Collis is a law professor here at the University of Texas School of Law and is the faculty director of the Texas Beck Laughlin First Amendment Center as well as the Law and Religion Clinic. Previously, he was the Olin Darling Research Fellow at the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford and was the chair of the Religious Institutions and First Amendment Practice Group at Holland and Hart LLP. Hiram Sasser is the Executive General Counsel of First Liberty Institute, a public interest law firm that focuses on religious liberty issues for people of all faiths, and Mr. Sasser also serves as adjunct professor here at the University of Texas School of Law. The discussion today will focus on religious liberty litigation after the two important Supreme Court cases, Kennedy v. Bremerton School District and Carson v. Macon. And with that, here's Stephen Collis and Hiram Sasser on religious liberty. Well, Hiram, you all you all litigated Kennedy. Do you want to do you want to share your thoughts on it, and we'll go from there? Yeah, I'll start off with uh, talking a little bit about about Coach Kennedy. You know, the Coach Kennedy case is kind of funny because, um, you know, when when we were first evaluating the case, uh, you know, and we were kicking it around. You know, our, our uh, you know, we knew one thing is that we weren't. We weren't we weren't interested in defending, you know, praying in the locker room and having the players all surround the coach and coach lead him in prayer and, and that sort of thing. So so we knew that, you know, we're not that's not what we're what we're interested in. But when we found out that that, that Coach Kennedy had started off in two thousand and eight with Hey, I want to be able to just be, or he was just praying by himself. That was his, that his um, religious calling was to pray by himself, and that the players joining him was sort of just this weird uh, uh, phenomenon that happened, and he didn't, he didn't think, hey, I should tell him no. He didn't want to tell him no. Just that they, they asked. Hey, coach, can, what are you doing out there after you know months of him doing it? He said, "Oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying a quick prayer, and uh, and uh, that's all I'm doing." And they said, "Well, are we allowed to come out there and, and join you?" And he said, "Well, it's a free country; you can do whatever you want." I mean, you know, he's not a con law expert; he's just a retired marine and, and coach. And uh, and so they, you know, they would come out, and then it just sort of morphed over time over number of years into kind of what um, you know ultimately ended up being uh, him with both teams in front of him uh, you know saying a prayer uh, with the gathered the uh, players around him holding up the helmet from one from his team and from the other team but that was not what he was called to do um, you know he, he didn't think that conflicted with his calling necessarily but he just wasn't called that he was called to pray himself and so when I found that out, and that that's all he really wanted to be able to do, uh, that he wasn't he wasn't interested in going back to the old thing. And when we looked at the letter that the school district had sent on September 16th, that said layers and and that sort of thing, he thought we thought, well, he'll just they'll just go back to better the school district, letting him know what that he's going to do that. 
And uh, there was a lot of coverage about it. And he went out there to go uh, to go do that at the October 16th game. And uh, yeah, the team messed it all up. They all came running out onto the field, the opposing team. And he'd already told the players of his team, hey, don't, you know, don't, don't be coming out there. Because uh, he was going to do it by himself. And, but then, uh, you know, he took a knee, closed his eyes, and the other team surrounded him. And then, you know, it, it was all the media there and everything else. And so that kind of messed everything up. Um, I was actually concerned they were going to fire him right then. And then that would be the fact pattern. <laughs> and it was just going to be terrible because that wasn't what he was trying to do. Um, uh, but fortunately the uh, school district responded in a letter that said, Hey, look, it's everything we see is, was, it was fleeting. It looks like he's trying to comply with our policies, but we have a new rule. And the new rule is he can't do anything demonstrably religious at all. Somebody can see him do it. Um, and then that became a problem. And, you know, we tried to meet with the school district. They refused to, to meet with us. And we had a bunch of emails back and forth trying to get a meeting. And you know, the superintendent would tell the newspaper they want to meet with us. I'd email the school district's lawyer, can we meet? We'd like to have a meeting. School district's lawyer would say, I don't think a meeting would be productive. And then the superintendent would tell the media they want to meet again. And then they started going around telling the press we wouldn't want to, we didn't want to meet with them, but we have all these emails going back and forth. But we were trying to get a meeting. Matter of fact, one of my emails said, they, 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 the school district lawyer asked, Jeff Ganson, he asked, well, what meeting do you want? What do you want to talk about? I said, I want to have the meeting that the school the school superintendent in this attached article said he wanted to have. That's the meeting I want to have. But we couldn't get that meeting. Um, and so then ultimately they ended up, because uh, I thought we, would, we were very close to, to resolving the case. I figured it was about a three-week case. Um, once they figured out he just wants to pray by himself, that's it. Then we ended up having to sue. So, you know, that's kind of how the that's kind of how the case got started. I mean, Steve, you you followed the, the coverage and you saw kind of what the other side had to say. Um, you know, what was your perspective of how the how the case got started? Because to me, that I was out on the field on on October sixteenth. By the way, just so you know, Steve, it's funny. I'm in the stands. It's October 16th. He, he's, he shakes hands with the opposing coach. No players are on the field. He's completely by himself. He takes a knee. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. The, 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 the players from the other team start running out there. If, you had, if there was audio that you could pick up, it would be me. I was in the stands, and I'm shouting, no! Don't go back! No! You're ruining it! <laughs> He's supposed to do it by himself. That's what he wants to do. Anyway, so that's yeah the the media coverage. I feel like the media coverage of it um, made it very difficult for him to just do this as a private act once it once it became you know kind of a big covered thing. But my so my um I have the luxury as a you know a full time professor to sit back and try to look at these things uh, objectively. I wasn't involved in the case. I had no involvement in it, and um, and I I had been watching it for years because, as you say, what you hoped was going to be a three week thing turned into what seven years or six years yeah, of seven back years. and forth litigation. 
And um, initially, I think I had a, a reaction very similar to yours, which was um, I had I had publicly stated and had lectured and even said in various uh, to various media outlets that I thought the school district probably had the better argument in this case uh, because of him leading prayers in the locker room, him giving what to me sounded like sermons to teams and, and, and players, and then him leading students in prayer. And you and I can talk about, you know, how we feel about that, but those to me and where I think the establishment clause should go as an academic, as I look at it, but what changed my mind and what made me eventually uh, want to support uh, the coach were, were two things. One, I learned exactly what you just said, which he wasn't asking to be able to do all those things. And I went back and I looked at, you know, when the case was going up to the Supreme Court, and I looked at the complaint and I looked at the injunctive relief that you all were seeking. And I realized what he was asking for was to be able to pray by himself, you know, once the players were off doing their own thing. And he was going to abandon all of that behavior that I thought was problematic uh, and had agreed to do that before. The, that's what, to me, what the litigation was about. That was the first thing. The second thing that made me uh, shift my uh, support for the coach was I was troubled by the Ninth Circuit's opinion in the part of it where they said that even if he is acting in his private capacity, you know, even if he's not acting in his official capacity as a coach, if his religious if his religious exercise could be seen as endorsement by the school district, that would violate the establishment clause. And the Ninth Circuit stated that as the rule um, that that rule that when public employees are privately exercising their religion and doing so could be seen as endorsement from their employers strikes me as incredibly problematic. It's different if you say they're acting in their official capacity. And I understand the arguments uh, of people who said that when the coach is down there on the field, he's always in his official capacity. And we can talk about that. But the broad rule that the Ninth Circuit stated uh, struck me as incredibly problematic in part because of something I had observed happening in Canada. Canada was so fearful of, of this note. And I should emphasize just Quebec because Quebec ties itself to French law and French law has this long tradition called laïcité, right? Of trying to just have this robust separation of church and state beyond anything that we enjoy or we, we have in the United States. And they were so worried about the fear that government could be endorsing religion because of public employee behavior that they passed a law saying no public employees can wear any religious garb while acting in their official capacity. So essentially, they can't engage in private religious exercise while employed by the government, which has, a, has had the practical effect of preventing all sorts of religious groups from being able to serve in jobs like teachers or, or even like your local government bureaucrat at the post office or the DMV, right? Like if, if you're a, if you're Muslim or Hindu or Sikh or a Christian who feels the need to have a cross around your neck where people can see it, you can't be in those jobs in Quebec. And the rule that the ninth circuit issued in this case uh, just struck me as incredibly problematic. So for me, it was those two things. What the ninth circuit had stated was the rule regarding endorsement when people are acting in their private capacity and then noting that what the, what the coach was actually asking for uh, changed my mind about, you know, whether or not he should win the case. Uh, at a minimum, what I feel like the Supreme Court needed to do is provide much more clarity in this area of the law. I don't really, you know the school district better than I do and have your behind-the-scenes war stories. I don't blame them for being confused about how they wanted to handle this because if you go back and look at 80 years of Establishment Clause case law, it's not exactly a model of clarity 
as to when school districts are violating the Establishment Clause, and I don't think most school district lawyers are even moderately equipped to being able to figure that out. So that was my perspective of it from the outside. Yeah, you know, no, I and I actually thought at the time, if we go back in, in the fall of 2015, I, my impression was they really didn't know how to handle it, and uh, and that's why I thought we should meet and 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 hash it out. Uh, I mean, I actually thought it was you know we had a kind of a brilliant uh, uh, you know compromise position, but it wasn't a compromise for coach. It was just it was the thing that he he felt like he had a religious calling to do. Uh, I mean, the only reason he was doing prayers in the locker room was that that practice actually predated him, his arrival to the school district. Uh, and because he was known as the coach that was praying, they asked him to pray in the locker room because, well, I mean, they just they just did. So, you know, that was just something he was doing just to, to you know, he thought it was like, you know, he was fulfilling a duty, you know, something he needed to do. Um and, uh, you know, I just assumed that once, I felt like once they saw him take a knee and pray by himself, that that visual would kind of kick in and they would realize this is going to be okay and this is fine and carry on. I think what happened when the, the players from the other team surrounded him, it just created chaos. And, and they just had no way of, I guess, they they just didn't want to talk about him praying by himself anymore, right? And um, uh, you know I don't and I don't know you know they once they got uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State as their lawyers and going to the Supreme Court you know they really dialed up the the rhetoric about you know that he really wants to pray with the players and that stuff which is not true. Uh, but I, I'm not. I don't know if they believe what they were saying in their briefing or not. I I think they actually might believe it, uh, which is sort of a sad testimony to our country, which is that you know uh, you can't have um, you know here you have two sides and and uh, uh, at least I would have thought that they would have been okay with him praying by himself. And and I think if we could go back to 2015 get everybody in the room. I actually, even America's United Separation Church and State, I think we could work it out. Uh, but, uh, um, but you know, I the, my greatest fear is that they actually believed their story, which is that, you know, that somehow the coach just wants to find some way to continue to pray with the players, which was not which was not what he, you know, what he wanted to do or the relief that he's not. What was funny about it, Steve, is that you know, they would make that claim, and I was like, well, why don't they make a standing argument? They could easily make a standing argument on that because Coach coach keeps disclaiming that he, that's what he wants to do. So if that's the relief for which he's seeking, he has no standing to seek that relief. Right. Okay? You know, so I, I never understood how they didn't flip it into a standing argument that uh, the coach kept disclaiming that that's what he wanted to do. Um, what I haven't know, figured out yet on that point, though, is – there are people that I respect deeply who are, you know, uh, often advocates for free exercise of religion who still place a lot of weight on the idea that he wanted, that he was praying with players and that he wants, wanted to pray with players. And I guess 
it sometimes makes me wonder if I'm missing something. Like when I go back and look, I, I went back, I've, I've looked at the complaint and the, and the request for relief probably 10 times to make sure I wasn't missing something. But it just seems, you know, the dissent is convinced that this is all about the behavior that he uh, explicitly said he didn't want to partake in anymore. And he wasn't asking for relief to cover. And a lot of scholars and others whom I respect are taking that same approach. And I just, I wonder why that is. I mean, maybe it's like you said, once they once they convinced themselves that that was the case, they just sincerely believe it. And it's hard to talk people off something they really buy into. But I've, that's, it keeps troubling me that people I still think that this case is about him wanting to lead prayers in the locker room and, and you know, give sermons at the 50 yard line, that kind of stuff. And I've, I've not figured out why that is. Well, I, part of it is, I think, you know, they just don't know. They, I mean, they've never met coach. They don't know him. Right. And, you know, once you meet him, you talk to him. I mean, it doesn't take maybe 15, 20 minutes. You realize a couple of things. One is, is that uh, while he, 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 ha he, he truly believes he has a calling to, to pray uh, by himself at the 50 after after each game he's not a very religious person i mean that is a sincerely held religious belief but he's not a very religious person i mean he didn't come to faith until he'd retired from the marine corps and you know when you meet him he's i mean he's probably 99 percent marine and you know and uh one percent something else i mean he's still kind of salty you know, I mean, look, he grew up, he grew up in, in Bremerton. Uh, you know, he was adopted and then his adopted parents, uh, basically once they could have a child returning, like returning, like returning to the, to the, you know, we don't want him anymore. Uh, he spent a good part of his youth living on the streets of Bremerton wow. and, uh, you know, I mean, by the time he was 15, you know, he worked a full-time job. He paid his own rent at an apartment and, uh, you know, went to school. The only reason he ended up with a high school degree at all uh, uh, was because he wanted to be in the Marine Corps. And they, they required it for him to be in the Marine Corps. So he, he goes to the Marine Corps. He's, a, he's just a street, wise, tough guy. And goes to the Marine Corps and 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 gets that kind of discipline and everything else. But at the end of the day, he's still just a salty, uh, you know, former uh, Marine. And uh, uh, you know, not he's the opposite. If you meet him and talk to him after about fifteen minutes, you realize he's the opposite of what you would think of as your typical. What the other side would think of as a typical sort of evangelist type person. Right. And. And, uh, and so when, when he says, you know, I just want to be able to pray by myself. I mean, it's, if you sit down and talk to him, you, you get that. Um, and you know, he just didn't want to be rude to the other, to the players and, and, you know, and then they, and they, and, and they sort of, it sort of became a thing on its own. And, and, uh, and I guess, you know, he just kind of got swept up in it, but it, it was never part of his, I think another thing is the other side thinks that he kind of planned it all out. Like this is what he wanted. And yeah, I think, just, I think you're right. I mean, the, the assumption is, is they they want to lump him in with folks who probably very much would love to see 
much more evangelical Christianity being pushed in schools, and they just assume he's in that camp. Let me ask you this. Um, to get to, you know, those who are opposed, again, people I respect who are opposed to his position. One argument that I, I, I respect, but I eventually came to a different conclusion on, I'll just throw it out there because I think it's good for listeners to hear it, and I'll explain why, I, why it didn't persuade me. You know, some people have made the argument like, look, it doesn't matter if it's endorsement test or if you say that it, that the Establishment Clause pro- uh, prohibits coercion. Um, as a coach of a football team out on the football field, his act of prayer in a demonstrable way like this at the 50-yard line where everyone can see him is just inherently coercive, and you can't get around that. That's the argument people make. And I actually think that's a reasonable argument. I respect it. I ended up not – it was close for me. I ended up not subscribing to it um, for a few reasons, but one of them is probably just my own personal experience. I have a son right now, plays – you know, class 6A Texas varsity football, highest level of football in Texas, Friday night lights and the spotlights on and everything. And I'll tell you what, when the game and the team meetings are over, all of the players are running to the sands to figure out who they're going to make out with. The, the band is packing up all their stuff, right? I'm trying to keep track of my toddler and find my own son so I can see how he's feeling after the game. If there's a coach walking out to the 50-yard line, kneeling down and saying a short prayer, there's no way on earth I'll even see it or know about it. And I think that's true for everyone around me. It's just so, you know, I, I again, I respect the argument other folks are making, but it just hasn't jived with my experience. I, w- I was just on a panel yesterday where, where one of my colleagues was talking about it as if everyone in the stand sits in quiet reverence while the coach walks out, five spotlights zero in on him. He gets on his knees and that's all anybody can see while he's praying and you know my experience has just been my real world experience has just been the complete opposite there could be a coach out there doing any number of type of different forms of religious exercise and i wouldn't even see it i'm trying to find my son and he's trying to find me and they're all doing their own thing so that's kind of i I thought i think it'd be good for good for listeners to at least know what the argument is but at the end of the day i I, it just didn't persuade me yeah you know the, the problem that i have is that you know it's really easy to to try to to take that argument and, and apply it to what you might refer to as evangelical Christianity and say, oh, that's too 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 influential or whatever. But if you had a coach that uh, uh, was a uh, is Muslim and has very specific times to pray that they adhere to, and that happens to be right after the game or during the game. And he pulls out his prayer rug on the sideline and, 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 and prays. I don't think he's, he's not making anybody else do anything. And, uh, you know, I've all, it always struck me as strange that the people would be concerned about what I would refer to this sort of this passive influence. You know, the, 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 some people would, you know, objected object to even the demonstrable, you know, that he's praying at all, uh, that it somehow has some passive influence. But there's so many other things like, you know, are they saying that if a, if a high school teacher is gay and is out about that, that, that that's somehow going to make, you know, influence people in class to be gay too? Or if they're a Muslim teacher and they're wearing, uh, if it's a woman, she's wearing um, 
her head covering, that that's somehow going to influence uh, people to, to, to participate. I, I just, I don't, I just don't, I don't understand the argument. Uh, I'm a little different than you. I don't understand the argument as applied to things other than evangelical Christianity. And, and I don't think anyone applies that argument of sort of this passive influence is, is extremely coercive or whatever in any other circumstance other than, uh, you know, they, that argument gets trotted out on establishment clause cases, which makes me think one of two things, and I don't really know which one is true, which is it's just an excuse to try to censor that in, a public, in public in some way, or that they think that uh, it's, that, that that Christian expression is, it carries with it more power than any other personal expression on the planet, um, which I guess would make that person a, the cr critical, the most evangelical Christian I know. Uh, so it's 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 difficult for me to kind of get my head around it uh, when that argument doesn't make any sense at all. It would not make any sense to anybody uh, if it was applied to any number of other personal characteristics that somebody may have that they're displaying. Uh, it, it, it would strike me as it would have to be equally influential or non-influential on the, on, on the kids. And, and I just don't know that we want to live in a society where we start trying to censor, uh, you know, everybody involved, you know, in, in education, for example, uh, to where they have to wear, you know, only neutral clothing, you know, don't smile too much. You know, just kind of be like these, these these robotic automatrons. They're human beings, and human beings have different things. And, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, and you're referencing football. I mean, goodness sakes, I got to imagine. You know, you're living there in Austin. Uh, you know, if uh, uh, the coach showed up and he's wearing all the UT, you know, football stuff or whatever, and my family's an OU family, an Oklahoma family. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not. I, I, for some reason, I'm just unconcerned that he's going. That he's going to. And and if somebody says, "Well, that's not the same as religion," well, that, they just haven't. Uh, you know, when when you can pack a hundred thousand person stadium, chanting chants and cheers and dedication and special clothing, special physical ceremonies. I mean, goodness sakes, I have special shoes I wear for my Oklahoma State games that I'm watching. Uh, that's about as close to religion as you can get. So anyway, I just, I, I don't get the argument as applied outside of establishment clause dealing with uh, Christian stuff. Yeah, that's a, that is a fair point. And, you, and maybe I think you've identified uh, um, another reason why I just simply didn't find it coercive. Um, you know, I get the power of a coach. And I get the power, of co uh, the influence a coach can have, and how much reverence players, uh, you know, how much reverence with with which players treat coaches. But um, at the end of the day, kneeling by himself, engaging in a short religious act, it just didn't strike me as rising to that level, especially when the players, it's the point where they're not paying attention. And and to your point, you know, we, we've got to prepare young people to live 
in a pluralistic society and a religiously pluralistic society. And to your point about having everyone only wearing neutral clothes, I mean, one thing that worried me about the endorsement test that I mentioned that the Ninth Circuit adopted and what worries me about what Quebec has done is, is having a bunch of kids go to a public school where the only adults they see are ones who either have no religion or don't have any religion that is demonstrable in any way is not preparing them for entering a world as religiously diverse as the one they're going to enter. And I would rather have a world where they see the, the Muslim teacher wearing the hijab and the Orthodox Jew wearing the yarmulke and the Christian who feels the need to kneel down and say a prayer so that they'll be ready for that when they go out into the real world rather than giving them this kind of false reality. Um, now, on the minority religion thing, I will tell you, I don't agree with this, by the way. It has not persuaded me even a little bit, but, but the argument I hear people make is that um, this is all about equality and fairness and the reason they would protect it for minority religions and allow this kind of demonstrative relig religiosity from minority religions but not from Christians is because Christians are in the majority in our country and have this kind of uh, higher level of power in society generally. And so prote protecting minorities is a way of treating them equally uh, in a way that the majority doesn't need. Again, I don't buy that argument. Uh, I also find who is in the majority and who is in the minority is constantly shifting in this country, depending on where you go. In some communities, uh, you may have a, a whole lot of evangelical Christians. And in other places, you might have an almost entirely secular school where the Christians completely on their own almost. And then you start thinking about all of the many other smaller religions we have in the United States. You know, the argument in my, in my mind just doesn't hold up. It's one I hear from people trying to justify why they might treat minority religions different than Christians. Uh, but again, it doesn't, it doesn't persuade me, but it's something that a lot of people have rested their head on. Yeah. I, you know, from personal experience, you know, my neighborhood that I live in in Frisco, Texas is about 80% from India or Pakistan, uh, a few from, uh, uh Iran, um, you know, a few from, uh, China, uh, you know, but, but a, about 80%, you know, from the Asian continent. And, um, you know, the, it's, it, this, I would say, you know, uh, predominantly Hindu, uh, but a significant Muslim population. And, and, and maybe the Muslim population actually, maybe Christians are third, probably in representation in my neighborhood, and that's in our neighborhood school. Um, I've actually, uh, I, I've actually found that there's a lot more respect for religion as such at the school as a result of that. Yeah. And that that's actually a good environment, you know, for my family, uh, being in the neighborhood and also in the schools because, uh, there, you know, there, there's some religions that are represented in the school that are a lot more demonstrative in their in their daily habits than you know maybe sort of your your typical evangelical Christian you know where maybe you know certain clothing uh, certain eating uh, requirements and and that and that sort of thing and and I I think that that a world of built around accommodation where we sort of accommodate each other and uh, uh, and, and, and give each other the room to practice our faith without worrying about that that's somehow going to influence 
anybody else, uh, you know, I, I think is I think is great. Just a little side note: I had to take uh, I, I was a chaperone for uh, some of the fifth grade boys. You know, had to live in a cabin. You know, the school actually sends them to a camp, uh, like a like summer camp, but during the school year. And uh, uh, it was uh, I was like the 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 food police for all my people of various faiths because I wanted to make sure that they. You know, their parents were kind of entrusting us with the care, and I and I was pretty pretty adamant about making sure that their dietary needs were were met. And, but the reason why is that you know, to me, honoring people's faith is important. I want my faith honored, but the only way I I can guarantee that is I've got to honor. I got to make sure I work hard to honor everybody's faith. And I mean, that's that's just a great part of of, of being an American. And I I don't I don't know why. Uh, people can't just embrace that level of diversity without trying to, you know, put uh, put ankle weights on one or the other. So, so, so since we are, uh, we, I think you and I could talk for eight hours on this stuff. And uh, one of the things I know that the uh, the podcast hosts are hoping we do is talk about what we think this means going forward. Maybe we shift into that, and then we can talk about Carson B. Making a little bit. So, what do you think the impact of Kennedy is is going forward on? Establishment clause jurisprudence. Well, I mean, I, I think it. it what, what what we found in Kennedy was that the big impact moment was our other case uh, from a few years before, American Legion versus American Humanist Association. Uh, you know, because Kennedy in the Kennedy, they you know we find out that that uh, uh, you know essentially the lemon test was was killed in American Legion. Uh, it, not everybody sort of thought that after American Legion. I mean, that was our case. And we, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like you find out, well, no, no, you, you won that a few, a few terms ago. Um, but, you know, the lemon test was always a problem for a, a number of reasons, but it, it, it favored censorship above all else. And so, in, in, in what it did for the average non con law aficionado who's a lawyer representing a government entity it created what i call the the presumption of censorship which is if it's religious we should censor but that's the safe move and, and these are not lawyers that are like anti-religious lawyers or school districts or whatever around the country or cities that are anti-religious i mean they could even been very pro-religion uh, it's just that they they thought that the law the safest the safest way to ensure they did not violate the law was to censor religious stuff in public. And and I think now the rule that what I if you wanted to break it down to that level the the general rule is accommodate religion whenever possible or as much as possible. And so I think we went from censorship as a default to accommodation, which should become the default. And to me, I think that that's, that's fantastic. Uh, but you know, we represent people of all faiths. And so, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, the, I, have, I, have, I have cases where, you know, the Orthodox Jewish community is getting treated terribly uh, and they're not being properly accommodated or uh, the Muslim, uh, Muslim folks like the the Islamic Society of Collin County wanted to have a cemetery and the town said no you can't have your cemetery there we had to fight to get the right to have a cemetery um, but 
you know, I think the default rule of being accommodation is where we're headed now. I mean, that's certainly what, what I, how I would simplistically break down what happened in Kennedy and American Legion. And, uh, and I hope that that becomes sort of the general advice that you hear from well-meaning people looking for the path of, of lowest liability. You know, I think, uh, especially considering our current Supreme Court, I think that's right. I also think that's probably just the best practice generally, regardless of what the constitutional rule is. Um, you know, I, on some level, I was a little bit disappointed with Kennedy, the, the opinion. And what I mean by that is, you're right, they refer back to American Legion. They say we've abandoned Lemon and its endorsement test. I think that's the language, the language they use. Why didn't they just say we are overruling lemon? Like they know how to use the word. They did it in Dobbs for heaven's sakes. Like they know how to say we are overruling lemon. Instead, they said we've abandoned or repudiated lemon and its endorsement test. So it's not clear to me if why they made that choice. Since they know how to use the word overrule, there, there must have been some reason that they kind of opted for that way of approaching it. I don't know if it's because they still value the entanglement, the no entanglement prong of lemon. And so they wanted to leave that on the table or something. It's just, that was kind of a bizarre choice to me. And I, I felt like they could have been clearer. Um, well, Steve, I have an explanation for that. Yeah. Lay it on me. Well, so I, I understand why they use the word overrule in Dobbs, for example. I mean, they had created a, they had a judicially crafted right. They had articulated and they were overruling that as a, as a created right. Lemon is a test to, it's not, it's not a, it's not, it's not the right. It's just a test and tests are uh, useful tools but they, and they can be abandoned, but you don't have, you don't overrule a test. You simply abandon it. No, but you, so overrule, I think you overrule precedent. And I think they could have easily just overruled Lemon as a precedent. I mean, and that's that's what they do. I, I just thought it was an odd choice. Yeah. I also, you know, I know you probably at my guess. I don't know you personally are, but I know folks uh, at First Liberty are um, huge proponents of the history and tradition test. You know, I see the I see the doctrinal allure of the history and tradition test, especially for the conservative legal movement. I still don't know if I'm a general counsel for some school district somewhere and the next fact pattern comes along. I don't know how to apply that. And I, I wish they would have given a little bit more clarity in that regard. Um, you know, the history and tradition is not necessarily, there's all sorts of questions that arise from this. Yeah. Um, including at what level of generality are you going to apply the history and tradition test? If you go too specific, it's not going to protect anybody. I don't think that's what the Supreme court wanted. So they're going to be going up a little bit of a level of generality to find a principle that that works well and gets applied. And that's something the courts are going to have to keep figuring out. And I suppose what the justices were thinking is like, look, this is the new approach going forward. We'll spend the next 30 years figuring out what the proper tests are and the various fact patterns that come along. And that's what the courts need to do. But that makes it very difficult for general counsel, which probably goes back to your opening comments on the effects of Kennedy, which is to say, if you want to avoid years of litigation and trying to figure out what the history and tradition allows, accommodate religion, teach, teach the value of living in a religiously pluralistic society, help people not to be offended at the drop of every dime and, and you'll be okay. as my guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's, that's where we're headed. 
Um, I mean, you know, we would argue that the history and tradition, and I think this is correct from a doctrinal standpoint, it's history and tradition of the of that type of thing versus you know the whatever the specific practice is or whatever the specific thing is as an issue. Like for example, if the city wanted to put up a Ten Commandments monument today, I think they they can, but it's not because the history and tradition of that Ten Commandments monument. It's the history and tradition of Ten Commandments monuments as such, you know, as part of a larger, you know, sort of passive religious displays. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, you know, it's it, it's going to be interesting because there, there will be perhaps some unique fact patterns that will emerge. I mean, just a, a, a kind of a, a unique fact pattern, but as we once we delved into the history, ended up not being as unique as I thought it was. Uh, is our Judge Mack case? It's at the Fifth Circuit. Uh, you know, well, um, I guess, I guess, I guess they didn't see John Mark review. So anyway, not not at the circuit anymore. It's done. But uh, in which uh, Judge Mack was opening uh, his court sessions with rotating um, uh, uh, people of faith, you know, leaders of faith leaders. Uh, whether it be you know a Baptist minister or a Buddhist uh, or uh, Hindu, uh, Muslim, Jewish, whatever, uh, and uh, he uh, was doing having an opening invocation before court sessions. Not only get all the facts of that case, but just sort of that's that 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 seemed unique to me at the time when we were looking at it until we started digging into the history of it and finding examples. Uh, in the founding era of of that kind of practice, and so you know it's sort of like town of Greece, uh, but it's at a court, uh, and then of course you have the generic prayer the Supreme Court does even to this day at the beginning, uh, and so as a result, you know sort of putting all that together, it's a history and tradition of that kind of practice, and uh, ultimately. That 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 prevails. So I think you're going to see unique fact patterns that seem unique, but we're going to go back and we'll look at the history and we'll find out it's not as unique as we thought they were. Although I will tell you this, Steve, which makes me laugh about this, is that the history and tradition test does have a, a, a certain limitation, which is you'd be surprised how many blasphemy convictions were taking place in the late in the late. 18th and early 19th century, and I'm not really sure that you have anybody, uh, if they if they gave an ounce of thought to it, that want to uh, resurrect blasphemy <laughs> blasphemy laws and and, and blasphemy uh, uh, convictions. But in uh, Maryland, in particular, had quite the quite well. The those, are, book. those are the types of specifics that get problematic with it. You know, the other thing was Catholics students just had a horrible time in public schools going back into the 1900s. I mean, we got a case from 1859 where a Protestant public school teacher was beating a Catholic student for refusing to read a Protestant version of the Bible. I'm sure that the justices and the majority right now, when they talk about history and tradition, that's not something that they would approve of. So it's got to be above that level of specificity. And I think it'd be a great, a great research project to dig into and, and argue, you know, try to calibrate precisely what level of specificity should apply. Um, so we have 11 minutes ish. Um, what do you think about Carson B. Macon? We have, you know, uh, this 
series of cases starting with Trinity Lutheran and then going on to Espinoza in Montana and then Carson v. Macon where the Supreme Court has essentially said, look, if you're going to give funding uh, to private actors, you cannot discriminate against religious private actors in the name of no aid to religion or out of fear of violating the Establishment Clause by giving aid to religion. And of course, this builds on a much longer tradition of at first it was no aid and then they said well we you know there can be public welfare services to religion and then they shifted a little bit more and said there can be indirect aid to religion if money goes to parents and the parents then send it to religion that's okay then they started to balk at that a little bit and said well you can't use money if it's for religious purposes uh and then the court kind of pivots and starts to say no like you just simply cannot discriminate against religion you can you can give aid neutrally to everybody or you can not give aid but what you can't do is say we're going to give aid to private actors who aren't religious, uh, and we're going to and and uh, or give aid to the private actors who aren't religious, but refuse to give aid to religious actors. Surprisingly, yesterday I was on a panel with with two professors who don't agree a lot on various religious liberty issues, uh, but they both agreed that they actually felt like this was the right outcome in the aid cases that they felt like this made sense. One. Uh, Larry Sager, the other Douglas Laycock, both felt like this was the the right outcome for different reasons. Larry, for equality reasons, and Doug, because he felt like either neutral aid or no aid is the only way to uh, not incentivize people to change their religious behavior. But if you're giving aid to secular schools and not religious, you're incentivizing people to change their religious behavior. Uh, and if you give aid to religious schools and not secular schools, the same thing. So uh, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, you know, just a, a little inside, it's kind of funny, you know, we, uh, uh, there was already precedent on the books that this main uh, uh, tuition program was, was constitutional. Uh, a couple, this was basically the third run at it. And we and IJ, Institute of Justice, were, we independently came up with the idea that we should make the run at it now. And uh, uh, when we fi figured that out, that's when we combined forces and, and did it together. And, uh, uh, and, and since IJ, you know, they had handled Espinoza, I mean, this has been an area that they worked on quite a bit. Uh, we, we, we made the decision to have them be lead and us to be co-counsel with them. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that, that I've never really understood is that the same people who, who would complain about entanglement, you know, the entanglement prong and, and limit, you know, oh, well, we can't have all this government getting involved in religious stuff and all this entanglement, whatever, would sometimes support the test, not all of them, but some of them would support the test whereby you can't, you, you know, you couldn't give, uh, uh, you know, aid to, to, to stuff that was religious, but you could, you know, to non-religious, which would necessitate the court to try to figure out what's religious and what's not. And, and right. they would, you know, it, it was, it was, they would one in one hand say, well, we don't want government and religion mixing. And then the next, and the other type of case, they would say, Hey judge, get in there and figure out what's uh, what's uh, secular and what's religious. And we want you as the secular judge to make that call and make that decision and then exclude the religious stuff from, from the participation in the program. I, I never understood how people who, who would, who kind of would fly the banner of separation of church and state would advocate 
for judges trying to dig in and figure out what's religious and what's not. And, uh, it, and so it just never, it never made sense to me, just logically. Uh, but I think from a doctrinal standpoint, uh, that uh, Professor Laycock is absolutely right. It's, you know, it's, it's all comers or nothing. And, and I think doing it that way is, is, is sort of the, the only way you could do it and, and, and still claim the mantle of neutrality. Because certainly you're not being neutral towards religion if you're sifting through somebody's documents uh, trying to figure out if they're religious or not, or, or, or are they doing something that's too religious? That's always what, is it, you know, is it, it can be religious but not sectarian. I never understood what that meant either. Uh, but, uh, you know, thankfully I think we're, we've now moved beyond that. Yeah, it seems like we've got some good, at least there's some clarity there. And, um, you know, you mentioned the, the problems with the Lemon test, just so just so listeners who are listening to this can understand it. Lemon, Lemon was an attempt to basically provide like a grand theory of the Establishment Clause. And so in the early 1970s, they have basically three prongs, right? A law must have a secular purpose. It has to have a secular effect and it cannot result in government entanglement with religion. And this was supposed to resolve all of these funding of private religious schools questions and everything. But to your point, to reiterate what you were saying, as judges started to apply this, it very quickly became obvious that the Lemon test was internally inconsistent and problematic. It, you know, you're not supposed to have government entanglement with religion, but in order to ensure government funding of religion was not resulting in a religious effect, the second prong that it had to have a secular effect government then had to start monitoring the money to see how it was used which got them all up in religion's business and entangled with religion and it created a series of nonsensical cases that came out in the 1980s you'd have things like uh, i was joking around with my students i think one case said something like all right money can go to this religious school as long as it's only used in the trailers that are you know outside of the school but if it's used if the money is used for anything that happens physically in the building uh, that somehow is 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 a, is a religious effect, but if it's used to teach the exact same stuff in the trailers outside, then that's a secular effect. Nonsensical decisions like that that just made absolutely no sense. And uh, you know, I, I'm glad at least that seems like the court in these funding cases has provided much more clarity. Now, where this is going, though, of course, as you know, Carson B. Macon involved the state of Maine. Maine said, you know, no funding to. We're going to give m parents money. They can send their kids to private schools, but not religious. Supreme Court strikes that down. And then the state of Maine says, all right, but wherever our money goes, you cannot discriminate against LGBT plus uh, students or faculty or staff. And that's the new battleground. I mean, if, if listeners are wondering where is where is the law going on this, that's those are the new cases that are going to be brought up. Can government, it's giving money out in a supposedly neutral way, can it then attach strings to that aid, to that government money, in a way that then burdens people's religious exercise? I mean, you know, in my in my opinion, this is not. I have a normative opinion on this, but that's not what I'm about to say. What I'm going to predict is where I think this current Supreme Court will rule on this, and I think what this current Supreme Court will say is that that's an unconstitutional condition. You don't get to put that type of string on aid. Um, you know, I'm still thinking through doctrinally what all that means and, and in other contexts where it might apply. But I think if that gets litigated, that type of program will likely get struck down by this current Supreme Court. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I think you're right. I think what, what 
at the end of the day, um, I think it, you know, there, it would be wrong for the government to try to craft rules to exclude certain religious beliefs from participate from 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 participating uh, that are you know uh, fairly widely held. I mean, goodness sakes, that you know, what, what Maine is talking about would exclude certain Orthodox Jewish schools, Islamic schools, uh, and and I don't I don't think that that uh, a rule like that that is essentially for lack of a better word, uh, especially with Maine, if you look at why they did this, it's in retaliation for Carson. This is almost this is almost like masterpiece cakes. It's almost like you wouldn't even have to to you don't have to do a lot of doctrinal work on this. You could you don't even have to you don't have to mess around with Smith or anything else. You just have to pull into the reach into the toolbox and pull out masterpiece cakes and say that the the, the uh, or Lukumi even. The, you know, Lukumi being that 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 the rule was, you know, that the rule, the adopted rule discriminates and targets again and targets religion for disfavored treatment. Uh, masterpiece cakes and my my formulation of it is that it's sort of the application version of Lukumi, which is even if you have a neutral rule uh, enacted, you know, for neutral purposes, uh, it can still be applied in a discriminatory manner. Uh, and I I think that would be. I, I think Maine would be doing both things there. So you don't really have to delve too hard in, into the doctrine in order to, to resolve that. So in some ways, that's almost an easy case. Uh, it doesn't feel that way from a public policy standpoint because it feels very controversial, but I think doctrinally that, that, that Maine's going to be in a lot of trouble uh, when, uh, when that suit comes. I agree about the argument that I think the schools will make. I mean, I think there will be two. One is that it's an unconstitutional condition, and the other one is that it's targeting. And I think you're right to hit on Lakumi's the first case out of you know 1993 where the Supreme Court says you know you, you can't tar you can't target you have to behave in a neutral way and you can't target religion for disfavored treatment. Nobody knew really what that meant, and then you get Masterpiece Cake Shop that provides some clarity on that, which essentially says, you know, whatever government's going to do with its laws and rules, it has to be behaving in a neutral way and can't target a particular religion because of their religious beliefs. And it does seem like saying, you know, entering, uh, putting in place this rule with the aid is targeting any religions who have traditional beliefs about human sexuality. And it does seem like it would run up against those two cases. Like I said, it may all be academic to debate it because I think this I think this iteration of the Supreme Court, one way or another, they'll either say it's it's clear lack of neutrality or they're going to say that there's an unconstitutional conditions or maybe they'll say it's an unconstitutional condition on aid because of the lack of neutrality. That's probably what they'll say. That's probably how uh, they Yeah. And and that'll be the end result. Well, Hiram, yeah. this has been great. I enjoyed chatting with you about it. Yeah, no, it's been it's been great. I just one last point. I, I when we talk about Lakumi, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Just a little trivia, uh, but in Employment Division versus Smith, uh, uh, Justice Scalia, you know, gives us the, he he has a string citation of a parade of horrible cases that are you know they're going on right now that uh, you know we can't it would create chaos if we allowed religious liberty uh, to prevail in these in these these nutty cases. You know, one of them he's list he lists there is the district court opinion in the Cooney. Oh, really? 
<laughs> well, it's funny. And then, and then, so if you're the council for, for the city of Hialeah, you know one thing's for sure when you're going to the Supreme Court. We've got Justice Scalia's vote. Right. And then, and then they didn't. And it just, I don't know, it just makes me laugh whenever I see that. Everything about those two cases makes me laugh. Scalia did not think that through even a little, little bit. You know, he says, if the law is neutral and generally applicable, you can burden religious exercise. And then he's shocked. He's just shocked three years later when lawyers are arguing that the neutrality prong and the general applicability prong are two separate arguments. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, what do you think lawyers are going to do with that? Well, Justice Kennedy, Justice Kennedy and Lacoumi, he he did them as separate as separate elements. Right. And, and Scalia's bothered by that. But I kept thinking, Justice Scalia, like you never defined it. If you meant it to be one thing, you should have said that. You didn't. And then you can't be surprised that lawyers are parsing your words. That's all lawyers do. Well, I know. And, I mean, look, <laughs> if, if, I mean if, if, if the guy right down the hall from you is, 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 is not doing it the way you thought, you know, of course no one else is. Anyway, right. it's kind of a funny thing. All right. Well, thanks. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you so much.